a companion psalm to the one which you have just sung, and that brought back memories while you were singing it. When I was a student years ago in Scotland, it was considered a very unorthodox uh, to begin a service without uh, first singing a psalm. In fact, uh, uh, I was told once up in the Highlands that we were not to begin uh, with a hymn of human composition, <laughs> but that we were to begin with a psalm each time. And uh, uh, that's a good thing to do because you memorize the Bible in, in uh, meter. This is the psalm just before it. Psalm 120. In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. Some time ago, I introduced some of you to a book. It takes me about a year to be convinced that a book my wife gives me is one I ought to read. <laughs> I don't know if you're that way, but when someone starts pushing me to read a book, I just don't read it. Uh, and then uh, I usually find out she's exactly right, and the book is very good, and that's so with this book. It, uh, it's called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the reason it's an important book is that it's an antidote to much of what is called popular Christianity. It's a Christianity which exists without a desire for holiness. Uh, it's a Christianity that wants to exist without a real uh, repentance, and uh, a Christianity which is really not a Christianity. If you begin uh, to look at the background, and by the way, this is a commentary uh, in sort of popular form on what are called the songs of ascent, or the songs of degrees, or the pilgrim psalms. Those psalms begin with Psalm 120 and go through Psalm 134. And in those 15 psalms, we have songs. Remember that the psalms were meant for singing. Just as we sung the hymn a moment ago, I to the hills will lift mine eyes, from whence doth come mine aid. My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. Uh, the psalms are, are meant to be sung. Uh, and so the people of God, who had been taken into cruel captivity and born away in 586, 588 B.C., 700 miles and more across the burning sands of the desert, all the way into the huge pagan city of Babylon. And there they were submitted to the harshest possible treatment. And their suffering was very, very great. 
And finally, when in the providence of God they were permitted to return again to their land, you can imagine the thrill that must have gone through them when having crossed the burning deserts they looked and saw the mountains of Jer that were surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the highest place geographically, the highest city in Palestine. And so you go up to Jerusalem. That's why they are called songs of ascent. You're ascending. You're going up by degrees. And when they were in the horrible, bitter captivity and bondage, God taught them lessons. This is why the psalmist begins, In my distress, I cried unto the Lord. I wonder how true it is of many of us that had we never been afflicted, had we never been in distress, had we never known adversity, we would never really have cried to the Lord in prayer. But you're a very wise person if you learn to make adversity work for you. I have often told the story how in 1970, we just have seen a, a golf tournament uh, in which uh, the weather played a big uh, role. But in 1970, the United States Open Golf Championship was held in Hasseltine, Minnesota, at the National Golf Club there. And sports writers say that it will probably go down in the record books as the worst national golf championship that's ever been held. The reason for that is that when it was held in that Minnesota weather, there was a sudden change and it became bitterly cold and winds gusted up as high as 40 miles an hour and yet the contest had to be played because these distinguished golfers had come from all over the world to be there. Great golf champions like Billy Casper and Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer uh, couldn't even break par because the wind was blowing, blowing so strong. Uh, but there was one man there who seemed to really be all smiles. He enjoyed the bad weather. His name was Tony Jacklin. He was the winner of the British Open Golf Tournament and he had been born and raised in England and Scotland, and so he was very much at home with the driving wind and the cold weather. He learned how to use the wind. Instead of it being a detriment to him, he played in such a way that he could hit the ball into the air and get the highest loft in the furthest distance in the right direction because he knew how to make an adverse wind work for him. If you saw chariots of fire, and you remember the beautiful music in the opening scene, that was not Kent, England. That was St. Andrews. <laughs> and that was the Carlton Hotel near St. Andrews. And it, I desecrated that great golf course at St. Andrews one time. <laughs> Mercy, it's right there on the sea. And uh, the grass is, is so tough and the sand is so deep and the wind blows and they don't think a thing about going out there and playing in all that terrible weather. And so this man, Tony Jacklin, 
was ready for the bad weather, and uh, he made it work for him, and he used it to win a great golf tournament. Uh, now then, the psalmist is telling us that we can use adversity too. That God used the most defeated time in his people's history to cause them to turn to him. The other night we were in Charlotte for the Leighton Ford crusade. He wanted me to come there to meet his uh, paternal father. And I went there for that purpose. And uh, Charles Colson uh, gave his testimony to that large gathering in the huge uh, Charlotte Coliseum. And Charles Colson said one thing that stuck in my mind and which is right in line with this here. He said that the lowest moment in his life, the most defeated moment in his life, the period which was bitterest for him, when Judge Gazelle sentenced him to prison, and he had to go through the indignity of leaving all of the trappings of richness and luxury and power and don the disgraceful uniform of a prisoner and be put into a prison and stripped of his citizenship and humiliated that then in his distress he sought the Lord he sought him, and God spoke to him. And he said, the turning point of my life was not when I was at the pinnacle, the zenith of power, but when I was at the nadir, the very bottom of the pit of despair. That's when God spoke to me, and that's when I listened. And then he went on to tell about the prison ministry that he is engaged in now and how that ministry has spread throughout the United States. He told us how Al Smith uh, had uh, uh, years and years ago, some of you can remember Al Smith when he was governor of New York. Um, he went around as governor and spoke in a lot of the prisons and he went to uh, one huge prison at Sing Sing and he uh, spoke to the prisoners and he was so accustomed to making political speeches that they'd assembled them all in the courtyard and he said, fellow Democrats. And <laughs> then he realized he had said the wrong thing. He was a Democrat. And uh, then he stopped and he said, I mean, uh, fellow citizens. Well, they don't have any citizenship. When you're in prison, your citizenship is taken away. Charles Colson came vote. And then he said, uh, he stopped and said, I mean, uh, I'm so glad to see so many of you here. <laughs> and uh, so it, that's the way it happens when you have your dignity taken away and your power and everything else you're stripped down. Well, the psalmist learned that in uh, the harsh bitterness of their imprisonment in Babylon, that they could appreciate the great law of God. For there they saw what a pagan people really lived like. And so in my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips. 
from a people who did not regard the truth, from a deceitful tongue, from people who set snares for me. And then he says, What shall be done unto thee? Or what shall be given unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. That's the feeling that you have when you're in an army barracks room and everyone there takes the name of God in an evil, in a terrible way. That's the way you feel when you're in a dormitory and everyone is drunk and immoral and you're trying to stand up for purity and righteousness. That's the way it is when you really tell the truth and instead of being congratulated for it, you're punished for it. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. But you see, God can use even this world in which we live, where so much of what we see on television and what we read in the advertising is all leading us the wrong way. And then we want to know the truth. We want to say no to the ways of the world, and we want to turn to the truth about God. Last week, in looking at the 139th Psalm, you see something of the profoundness of the psalmist knowing that God knows him through and through that God is with him no matter where he goes, and that God's power has not been curtailed, that he is the maker of heaven and earth, and that he made him, and that God makes the difference between right and wrong. There are four things that God wants you to know. God wants you to know that he knows you, and he knows you're a sinner. But God wants you to know that he loves you. God wants you to know that there's no way for you to be saved except through Jesus Christ. God wants you to know there's no better time than now when his spirit speaks to you. He wants you to know those things. So the psalmist is being overwhelmed by the presence of God. The truth about me is that God made me and loved me. The truth about uh, me is that God uh, made even my enemies, and God loves them, and he wants to speak to them. The truth about the world is that God rules and provides for it. The truth about what is at the center of our lives is that Jesus died and rose again for our salvation, and that we can participate in newness of life as we believe in him. And that's where we come uh, to the realization that the psalmist feels when he is able to look toward the hills that are around Jerusalem. Imagine what it would feel like going up toward that city. And then you catch a glimpse of those mountains. How his heart would pound and how he would be thrilled through and through with joy because he knows 
that God is alive and God has kept him through all of that horror that he has gone through. God has brought him out of it. God is his helper. Night before last at 11 o'clock, Corey Tin Boom died on her birthday. She went to be with Jesus. I remember when Corey stood right here at this pulpit and she spoke to us and told us of when she was in Ravensbrück, the terrible German concentration camp in which every living relative that she had was imprisoned, and I believe that she alone was the survivor. And she said that she was only a survivor through a blunder of man and a miracle of God, a clerical error, had kept her from being uh, sent with all of the women in her group into the gas chamber. She was there because she had aided Jews, helping them to escape from the Nazi horror and persecution. In Jerusalem, they planted a tree in what they called the, the Hall of the Just for her. And when she was so honored in Jerusalem and she was knighted by the Queen in Holland, Corrie ten Boom spoke of another tree. She spoke of Jesus Christ, her Messiah, who suffered more than she had suffered in prison and who understood her grief and her sorrow. And so the psalmist knows that God helps. And Corey said here when she was telling us those terrible experiences, Jesus, and she made that V sign, Jesus is victor. And that she used to sneak out of her horrible cell where all of the women were placed in decks and just packed into a wretched hut, freezing cold, no food, working them to death. And she said when she saw the groups of people being marched to the gas chamber, she would go out in the bitter cold morning and crawl toward the place where she could shout to those to whom she had witnessed, Jesus is victor. Jesus is victor. Jesus is victor. And so the psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. And then a question is asked. This is not a statement, but a question. From where does my help come? Now he is reminded of God in Jerusalem, and those hills remind him of God. My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. The fact that he has turned from the distress that he has known and the adversity has been used to drive him to the Lord and he repents. And repentance is the greatest thing that can happen to you in all of life. Repentance is greatly misunderstood. It is not simply a sorrow for sin. That may be a little part of it. But the big part of repentance is an, a reorientation. It is a different mind set. 
It is a mind that is set contrary to the way in which the world does things. It's a mind that is set according to the compass that we get from God's word. And whichever way that magnetized needle points us, it points us to God and obedience to his commandments. That's why this book is so important, a long obedience in the right direction. Anyone who hears Charles Colson or Tom Landry or Mike Mosley or some great singer or some great preacher can be interested in Christianity for a little while, but it's a long obedience in the right direction. It's a desire to achieve holiness. It's not instant credit in eternity. It's faithfulness to the Lord day after day after day. And that means that all of this adversity leads us to turn to God. Gene Peterson, the author of that book, says that one day he was mowing his lawn and it was dull and so he had to change the blade on the lawnmower. And being a preacher and not knowing much about changing the blade on the lawnmower, he started to change it and he took one wrench and tugged at the bolt and he couldn't get it loose. And then he got a bigger wrench and he couldn't get it loose and he got the biggest wrench he could find and exerted all the power that he could and he still couldn't turn the nut. And then he got a pipe to extend to give him more leverage and he pushed with that and it still wouldn't turn. Then he got a rock and beat on the pipe and his neighbor was watching him across the fence and his neighbor came over and was very gentle and quiet and his neighbor said, you know, I used to have a lawnmower like that one and he said that that bolt is threaded the other way. <laughs> And he said, what you're doing is tightening the bolt. <laughs> he said, pull it back the other way. He tried it the other way, and sure enough, the neighbor was right. The nut came off. And that's what we do sometimes. We beat against the pipe, and we are frustrated and confused and bewildered and wonder why all of it's going wrong and it's going wrong because we're turning it the wrong direction. And so the psalmist hears the voice of God speaking to him from the hills and reminding him of the maker of heaven and earth and that his help comes from the Lord which made it. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. The pilgrim marching on his way toward Jerusalem could step on a rock and slide. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You remember when Elijah was taunting the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel? He said, why don't you shout a little louder? Your God may be asleep. You've got to wake him up. But when Elijah prayed, He could calmly pray to his Lord, and God spoke. God does not sleep. 
He's always there. I can remember those years ago when Mr. Johnson was president. I used to sometimes have to sit up at night a long time with him and would be there, uh, the only one in the bedroom with him till two or three in the morning. I remember one morning going out of that room. I was so tired I could hardly hold my eyes open. And I went out of the uh, president's bedroom and out into the corridor. He kept all the lights off and you stumbled over everything. And uh, there was a Secret Service man right outside the door sitting at a night desk with a little tiny light on. And I had to come back about 6.30, uh, quarter to 7, uh, to his room, and the president was already up when I got there. But when I got back, there was a fresh Secret Service agent there sitting at that same desk. He was always being watched. The security of that man as president is tremendously important. And so he is always watched. And the psalmist is saying here, my security is that I am being watched by God. His eye is on the sparrow, Ethel Waters used to say. And she had a great sense of humor. She was a huge, big, heavy lady, and she said, uh, if his eye can see a little old sparrow, he sure can't miss me. <laughs> He's watching you. He's watching you. And it gives dignity to you to know that he is watching. One of my favorite stories about Abraham Lincoln is very true. During the Civil War, much of the fighting that started in the earlier part of the war took place right around Washington, D.C. And the president himself would often go to the hospitals and visit uh, those who had been wounded. And Abraham Lincoln had gone to visit in one of the hospitals in Washington some soldiers who had been terribly wounded and taken uh, there for treatment. One boy who was delirious with pain, did not realize that he was being approached by the President of the United States. And the President tried to comfort him. And he said, is there anything I can do for you? And the boy was crying for his mother. And Mr. Lincoln sat down by him and spoke gently to him. And the boy said, I'm going to die and I'm a long way from home. And he said, would you be so kind as to hold my hand to the end? It was about nine o'clock at night when that took place. Abraham Lincoln sat there and he held his hand from nine to 10 and 10 to 11 and 11 to 12 and 12 to one. And at three in the morning, the boy expired, and the president folded his arms across his chest and closed his eyes. But he saw to it that the boy had the dignity of being watched, that someone cared, and someone was with him. And the psalmist feels it here. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sh sleep. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. 
That means the sun shall not smite thee by day, the glare of thee, and uh, danger of sunstroke, nor the moon by night. Literally, that's where we get the word lunacy or lunatic or craziness. There was an idea that the night could drive you crazy. And the Lord protects you against the evil that lurks then. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. He keeps you where it counts. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. When David Livingston left to go out to Africa, his father walked with him to the place of departure. And before they had gone that way, they read this very psalm together at the breakfast table that morning when they had coffee. And then they left for the city of Glasgow and for the departure point. He was going out not knowing whether he would ever see his son again. But they knew that the Lord would watch over them both. And this is what brings meaning to our life, that God loves us and that he watches us. You look and you think, I want you to think of another thought. And that is that in the hills, there's not only a hill called Sinai, where we learn about the law of God and which teaches us about righteousness and shows us that we are a sinner. But there is another hill called Calvary, and Calvary covers it all. It tells me that though I have sinned grievously against God, that God loves me and that he will forgive me. There's another hill called Olivet, and one day Jesus is coming back to claim his own. He'll come back to Olivet. Below Olivet is Armageddon, and that horrible day will come too. But I don't have to be afraid of that day because the accounts have been settled long ago. And you can settle the account too by taking the gracious invitation which God has given you to ask Jesus Christ into your own heart that he might be your Savior from sin and the Lord of your life, that he might keep you in all things. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gracious words which we have just been permitted to sing and pray that you will help us to know that this world in which we live is not our final abiding place, that here we have no continuing city, that we journey toward a place which Jesus has gone to prepare for us. We thank you, Father, that he has given us exceeding great and precious promises that enable us to bear with the suffering and the trials of life, knowing that Jesus is truly victor. We thank you for our dear old friend, Corrie ten Boom, and for the blessings she now enjoys in heaven with thee. And we pray that you will help us to be faithful, faithful to the faith, faith in Jesus Christ, faithful to whatever battle that might entail, 
even a willingness to suffer for him and faithful to the finish of our days. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.